You're listening to Comedy Central. Hey, what's going on, everybody? I'm Trevor Noah, and this is the Daily Social Distancing Show. Today is Tuesday, June 15th, and the big news everyone is talking about today is that New York and California have basically ended all their pandemic restrictions for businesses. I mean, no more capacity limits for movie theaters, no more partitions for restaurants, nothing, nada, zero. And don't get me wrong, don't get me wrong. I'm glad that the pandemic is getting better, but I'm not happy about this, all right? I liked some of those restrictions. It was nice to sit in a movie theater that wasn't super packed. I go to the movies so I can be immersed in a story, not so that my leg skin can get stuck to a stranger's leg skin. And as a New Yorker, I'm furious about the tables no longer being six feet apart. In New York, restaurants put tables so close together that you're basically eating together. If you're next to a couple breaking up, oh, now you're part of the breakup. When dinner's over, now you gotta go and help him get his stuff out of her apartment. What the hell? And space is so tight that people are always squeezing by and they're knocking stuff over. Every time the person next to you gets up to go to the bathroom, you have to hold the glasses and ketchup bottle like it's an earthquake. Yeah, yeah, no, it's cool. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I get it, it's cool. <laughs> So if we're all gonna pack into places again, let's at least, let's at least please just keep those plexiglass partitions, please. They keep you separated from other people and it lets you pretend that you're a hockey player sitting in a penalty box, you know? Makes me feel cool. I'm not just eating a hamburger, I'm serving two minutes for cross-checking. Ah. Anyway, coming up on tonight's show, Chrissy Teigen goes on an apology tour. We've got 15 million Girl Scout cookies that we've gotta eat. And Lin-Manuel Miranda joins us to talk about everything happening with his latest film, In the Heights. So, let's do this, people. Welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. From Trevor's couch in New York City to your couch somewhere in the world, this is the Daily Social Distancing Show with Trevor Noah. Ears edition. Let's kick things off with the coronavirus pandemic. It has disrupted so many things over the past year and a half. The global economy, our love lives, Chick-fil-A's plans for a fried bat sandwich, and now it's even coming after our snacks. The Girl Scouts say 15 million boxes of unsold cookies are currently sitting on shelves. The organization is now encouraging people to buy boxes online before they expire. The Girl Scouts normally sell around 200 million boxes of cookies per year or around $800 million worth, but the pandemic kept them from going door to door to sell their cookies. No, guys, 15 million boxes of Girl Scout cookies are just sitting on the shelves? I mean, I was gonna start my post-pandemic diet this week, but the Girl Scouts need our help. I'm gonna do this for them. In fact, you know what? Forget buying them. They're just sitting in a warehouse somewhere. You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna pull the world's tastiest Ocean's Eleven. Step one, just gotta find 10 friends. Yeah, I lost contact with a lot of people over the pandemic. Apparently being nude on FaceTime doesn't make you <laughs> endearing. But let's be honest though, people, the real reason Girl Scout cookies didn't sell this past year is not because Girl Scouts couldn't go door to door. It's because the parents of Girl Scouts weren't in their offices. And because they weren't in their office, they couldn't shame their coworkers into buying 200 boxes worth of Thin Mints. And I'm not hating on it, I'm just saying. Every box of Girl Scout cookies I've ever bought was sold to me by a bald man in his 50s. But you know, if you ask me, this actually gives America an opportunity to solve two problems at once. Yeah, think about it. Just offer free Girl Scout cookies to anyone getting the vaccine. America will be at 100% vaccination by the weekend, baby. I mean, except for the places that give away trefoils. I'd, I'd rather get a COVID than eat them shits. Meanwhile, 
Another thing thrown out of whack by the pandemic is the Tokyo Olympic Games. We've had to wait a whole extra year to wake up at 3 a.m. to watch strangers go swimming. But now the Olympics are finally here. Although with some pretty big changes. We all know that COVID is forcing some big changes compared to a typical Olympics that includes in the Olympic Village. Olympic organizers typically give away tens of thousands of condoms during the games for all the athletes. But this year, there is still going to be a condom giveaway, but they are telling the athletes not to use them until they get home. COVID restrictions mean the athletes shouldn't be getting close enough to be um, active with one another. Olympic organizers say they are hoping the athletes take the condoms back to their home countries to raise awareness about HIV, AIDS, and other issues. Hold up, hold up. Japan is not going to let Olympic athletes have sex with each other? Well, then, I mean, what's the point of even going to the Olympics then? What, to bring glory to one's nation? Wrong! It's to smash! That's why the sprinters go so fast. They want that race to be over so they can get back to the main event. If you can't have sex at the Olympics, half of the sports wouldn't even have anybody in them. Nobody's gonna spend 20 years learning how to jump over a pole with another pole unless they know that at some point they're gonna get laid for it. And let's be real, they can tell athletes not to use the condoms until they get home, but all that's gonna mean is athletes are gonna be having sex without condoms, which maybe isn't the worst idea. It means in 18 years, we're gonna have the greatest Olympic games of all time. But let's move on from the Olympics to a woman with a gold medal in insanity. Marjorie Taylor Greene, Georgia Congresswoman and your crazy aunt's even crazier friend. Since her shocking rise from QAnon forums to the House of Representatives, Greene has become notorious for her willingness to say absolutely anything with zero shame. Whether it's conspiracies about 9-11 or the existence of Jewish space lasers which is ridiculous. I mean, everyone knows that the Jewish space laser was taken out by the Buddhist submarine missiles years ago. But now, MTG is admitting that some of her recent comments might have gone too far. Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene is apologizing for comparing COVID restrictions to the horrors of the Holocaust. She previously compared mask mandates to the Nazis forcing Jews to wear yellow stars. Her apology came after visiting the Holocaust Museum. I have made a mistake and it's really bothered me for a couple of weeks now. And so I definitely want to own it. The horrors of the Holocaust are something that some people don't even believe it happened, and some people deny, but there is no comparison to the Holocaust. And there are words that I have said and remarks that I've made that I know are offensive, and for that, I want to apologize. Going to the Holocaust Museum was just a good reflection, and it was, it was good to look and see things there. And one of the things I was reminded of is how terrible their policies were. Yo, guys, America isn't serious, man. This woman writes the laws, the laws that govern the land, and she's out here like, yo, you guys heard about this Holocaust? Shit's wild. I mean, for real, though, are we gonna get a press conference every time Marjorie Taylor Greene learns about something? Because she doesn't know about a lot of things. It has come to my attention that putting metal in a microwave makes the microwave go boom, boom. I think it's important to acknowledge that. But I will say in some ways, I feel bad for this lady, man. Learning things is tough, you know, because it forces you to take back all the ignorant shit that you've said in the past. It's why the only museum I go to is Madame Tussauds. Madame Tussauds. 
Come stupid, leave stupid. But let's move on now to our top story. It's about Twitter, the internet's septic tank. And now, one of its most famous users is expressing regrets about how she spent her time on the platform. This morning, Chrissy Teigen is publicly apologizing, breaking her social media silence to address past tweets and cyberbullying. On Monday, writing in a lengthy blog post, I know I've been quiet, and Lord knows you don't want to hear about me, but I want you to know I've been sitting in a hole of deserved global punishment, the ultimate sit here and think about what you've done. Last month, Teigen's decade-old tweets resurfaced, showing a string of harassment directed at model and TV personality Courtney Stodden. Teigen told the then-teenager in one now-deleted tweet captured by BuzzFeed she wanted Stodden to take a dirt nap. Late Monday, fashion designer Michael Costello posted screenshots of Instagram DMs from Teigen, sharing that he's still traumatized, depressed, and has thoughts of suicide after online interactions with the star back in 2014, and alleges Teigen tried to ruin his career. In her blog post, Teigen says she's privately reaching out to people she has hurt. Not a day, not a single moment has passed where I haven't felt the crushing weight of regret for the things I've said in the past. I have to stop and wonder, how could I have done that? Whew. Okay. There's a lot of stuff to unpack here. In fact, there might be too much to unpack, which means we're probably going to need another edition of Now Let's Talk This Out. Okay, so first of all, I think we can all agree that Chrissy Teigen has been a particularly horrible person online. Because yes, a lot of people have said mean things on Twitter, but to chase people into their DMs? Yo, man, that's like Mike Tyson coming to punch you one more time at home after the fight. It's pretty f***ed up. And you know what's really wild about this whole story? Is that Chrissy Teigen was in this world of vitriol and hate when her husband is famous for singing the most uplifting love ballads. Like, she was sitting on the couch, tweeting that people should kill themselves, and John Legend was 10 feet away in the same room, singing, all of me loves all of you. And honestly, I'm glad that Chrissy Teigen is owning up. I'm glad that she's owning up to being a horrible person online because that is what we want, right? We want people to be better and we want people to grow. It doesn't immediately excuse what they did before, but I think it's way better than them not learning and growing. And you know, even though the story was so messed up, what really gives me hope is that back when Chrissy was bullying people online, millions of people were cheering for her. But now, a lot of those people are criticizing her for that same thing that they cheered, which yes, on the one hand is hypocritical, but on the other hand is good because it shows you that society has evolved, which is what we're always trying to do. We don't wanna accept the shit that we're used to. And please don't get me wrong, don't get me wrong. Online bullying still happens way too often, but at least now there's much more awareness of how harmful it can be. And for that, we obviously must thank Melania. I don't know how she did it. I just, you know, think she held a press conference one time and stood in front of a sign and the next thing you know, we be best. But you know, this apology also made me think about why exactly Chrissy Teigen was so brutal to people to begin with. Because let's be real, Chrissy Teigen was far from the only asshole on Twitter, right? Yeah, she might have been one of the biggest and one of the best at it, but being on Twitter is a lot like when dogs meet at the park. There's assholes on display everywhere. 
And that's not an accident. Like what we have to understand is that social media pushes people into being their most asshole-ish self. Roasting people, dunking on them. That's how you get the likes. That's how you get the retweets. It's how you have fun. It's how you get to be part of the group. And the platforms want you to spend all your time on them, so they send you stuff to outrage you. You know, Twitter sees when a few people are attacking someone and, and they put that in the trending topics. Five people dunk on some random guy and then Twitter says, oh, maybe everyone in the world would enjoy dunking on this random guy. Is the random guy gonna enjoy it? Yeah, whatever, whatever. If he didn't want the whole world telling him to get AIDS, he shouldn't have posted that tweet to his 45 followers. He wanted this. So then what do you end up with? You end up with millions of people looking to roast each other, to say the nastiest things that they can think of until they go too far. And then all of a sudden, the outrage they were a part of turns on them. And that's not a mistake. It's how the system is set up to keep us all online and to keep making money for the platforms. Because think about it. Chrissy Teigen wasn't going up to people in real life telling them to kill themselves. In fact, most of the things people say to each other online, they would never dare say to another human being in real life. But there's something about the platform that incentivizes people to be the worst versions of themselves. And until we ask ourselves why, all we're doing is chasing after the symptoms and not the cause. And look, I'm not gonna pretend that I'm better than anyone else. I mean, Lord knows I've said things on Twitter that I wouldn't say today, and I don't know how to fix this. The truth is though, that people being dicks on the internet is probably gonna be a problem for a long time. And it's gonna be a problem as long as these platforms reward people for being dicks online. You know, the last tweet before the ocean swallows us all up is gonna be someone saying like, yo, look at this iceberg melting like a bitch. But I will say this, we can't change the platforms overnight, but the least we can do is make an effort as individuals to be a little less cruel. And, and I'm not saying every tweet has to be smiles and gumdrops. We can still be humans, we can still have fun, but maybe, maybe, just aim for that giant space between Chrissy Teigen hate tweets and any John Legend song. All right, when we come back, American soccer superstar Christian Pulisic will be joining me on the show and Lin-Manuel Miranda is still coming up, so don't go away. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. My first guest tonight is American soccer superstar, Christian Pulisic. He recently won two major championships within eight days and is the first American to win a Champions League final. It's no wonder he's known as the Captain America of soccer. Christian Pulisic, welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. Thank you so much for having me. You know, you are not only one of the most celebrated football players in the world right now, soccer players in the world right now, you are also one of my favorite players to play with in FIFA because you are insanely fast and you just get the job done. You, you make history every time you step on the pitch. I mean, you are now the only and the first American to win a Champions League. And then within the space of eight days, you go on to win another championship for USA and you kick the winning penalty kick. Let's talk a little bit about the journey of Christian Pulisic. What does it feel like right now? Are you, have you even soaked in everything that you've achieved in the space of like, what, three weeks? I don't think I have yet. Um, I'm really just trying to take it all in. It's been uh, an unreal journey, honestly. Uh, I can't believe that 
I've got to this point uh, so soon, but I honestly just feel really lucky. So, you know, you, you you've um, you've gone at the title of Captain America. That's what that's what the fans call you. That's what the media calls you. And I think for good reason because you have come to be the face of American soccer in the world, and people love you for it. Because for so long, people were like, "Oh, Americans don't care about soccer. They don't like soccer." But you you have this passion in the fans, fans at Chelsea, fans around the world. What do you think it is about the way you play the game and what you bring to the game? that has made people fall in love with you and the way you play the game? It's tough to say. I think uh, I think I just bring a different uh, spark to the game than what a lot of uh, people have seen from Americans in the past, I guess you could say. Uh, I like to be just creative and, and, and try new things, and I hope people see that and think, you know, you know, maybe Americans can do it. So uh, I'm hoping I can also uh, inspire others, others to do it back home as well. Right, I, you know, I don't even think it's a maybe anymore. I mean, now you've just made it, it's, it's only a matter of time. I remember when I was growing up, one of the biggest arguments we used to have was whether USA could ever win a World Cup. And we were always like, USA will never win a World Cup because they just don't care about soccer. And it feels like this generation is changing that. You've got teammates who are playing in some of the biggest teams in the world, which is a new generation for Team USA. Talk me through why you think this change has happened and, and, and what the dynamic has changed in the actual squad. Absolutely. I mean, there were definitely American players who had played in Europe before and, and, and guys that I even looked up to. But I think in this new generation, you're just seeing just a bunch of fearless guys just going for it in Europe. I don't right. know. I, I really just took a, a big risk moving to Germany, for example, and, and you know, Weston, for example, going out and, and doing his thing in Germany, then getting a move to Italy. And I think it's just this this new generation of just fearless soccer players who just want to go out and, and prove to the world that, that Americans can do it too. And I think that's why we're seeing such a, yeah, such a big jump. You know what, you know what I've always appreciated about you is every time you get on the pitch, it doesn't matter when you would get on the pitch. It always felt like A, you were grateful to be on the pitch and B, you were going to make the most of every single minute that you came. Where do you get that from? And like, what is it about the game that inspires you to always want to do your best even with the little time that you've given, that you've now increased to just being the star of many of your games? I think it's what you said. It's really just the love for the game. I mean, I have so much passion for, for this sport. And I mean, there's a lot of other people who, you know, who would love to be doing what I'm doing. And honestly, I feel grateful anytime I'm able to, to step on the pitch. So that's really just what it is. And then just going out and trying to enjoy every moment because, you know, one minute, like you said, whether it's one or 90, you can, you can change a game and you can influence a game. And that's, that's always my mindset going into it. What many people will appreciate about you is you don't just have a joy for the game for yourself, but you have a joy for the game for others. You know, you come from Hershey, Pennsylvania. You just plowed yourself into the game of soccer. You're like, I'm gonna do this thing. I'm gonna make it as, as, as far as I can. You've gone to the, you know, to the top of the game. 22 years old, you still have your whole career ahead of you. But now what you've started doing is really paving the way for others to follow in your footsteps. So talk to me about what you're doing, what, what's happening. I know you, you started sort of like an academy, you've started like a training program. What, what are you doing and what are you hoping to achieve with this? Yeah, so I'm uh, really excited that I was able to, to help my, my hometown, you know, club, Academy PA Classics, um, to basically build, you know, new fields for, for these kids. There's, there's a multiple miniature fields that these kids can kind of just go play on there's there's another field where there's a nice kick wall some skills challenges and stuff and it's it's really just an area that i hope the kids can just go to and, and have fun sometimes without coaches sometimes without because that's growing up i think that's what i missed out on in the states where after school you just you know the kids might go play basketball they might go do these other things right, yeah and, 
it's just such a it's such a different culture. I think it was when I when I moved to England actually when I was when I was very young. I lived there for a year, and, and after school every day we went on these little courts and we were just playing for hours, you know, kicking the ball around. And that's where I really started to love the game so much. So I hope that I, that's obviously just one you know small you know portion of it, but I hope that yeah. it really inspire kids to just go out and want to play and have fun and you know maybe see my name on the on the court and think you know you know I want I want to be like him and that's uh yeah that would be that would be the goal well you know what you're so young that not only could they try be like you they could probably meet you in the league and then you could beat them in the final and then remind them that you made it all possible for them um but Christian thank you so much for joining me man congratulations on everything you're doing thank you for your passion for the game thank you for bringing it to the US in the way that you have done thank you for bringing the fans into the sport and congratulations on all your trophies all your medals and everything that's still to come thanks so much thank you for having me all right when we come back the one and only Lin-Manuel Miranda will be joining me on the show to talk about everything going on with his new film in the heights Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. My next guest is the multiple award-winning composer, lyricist, and actor, Lin-Manuel Miranda. He's here to talk about the story behind his first Broadway musical and now feature film, In the Heights. Lin-Manuel Miranda, welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show. Thank you, sir. Always a pleasure. So, everything you write turns to gold. Everything you do seems to be a smash success. You are now here on the show to talk about a book about the film that many people are seeing as the vaccine to the world that we've been living in for so long. It feels like now the book about the successful movie, about the successful Broadway play is now also going to be a success. Tell me what this book is about. And most importantly, if I read this book, Will I be able to also make a Hamilton? Can I do a Hamilton? It's an instruction guide, precisely. That's what I wanted to. Tell me, tell me about the book. The underappreciated historical figure. <laughs> Add genre. Um, no, I think the. Um, it, it, it's funny actually. Today is the fourteenth anniversary of us winning the Tony for best musical. Wow. This musical has been in my life since I was nineteen years old, and so. It's a lot to cover in a book. My, my co-writer, Jeremy, says this is like the Godfather part two of the books because it goes before Hamilton. It has like the stories before Hamilton, right, including right, right. and after, because it's it's so much about meeting the collaborators that I would go on to work with uh, Hamilton on. But also it follows all these other journeys, like Chris Jackson, who played Benny in the original show and plays Mr. Softy opposite my Piragua guy in the movie. He met his wife when she was playing Nina and he wow. was playing Benny in a workshop. I remember their chemistry read uh, when we, when like they held hands, but it wasn't in my script that they hold hands. <laughs> <laughs> like I was like, oh, they're actually falling in love in real time in my show. Um, and so like so much of my life is bound up in the journey of it. And so I do annotations on the lyrics of all of the songs. Jeremy sort of tells lots of stories. Kiar, my co-writer, contributes essays uh, specifically about specific moments in the show and transitions to the film. Um, so we just try to cover as, as much as we can. It, it, it's such an insane story that I feel like can never be replicated because here you are, a 19-year-old student who's, who's just like learning about this world and then you go like, man, I have this musical in my head and there's this thing I wanna try and do. And what, I, what I've loved to see is, is, is the journey because like you said earlier about the Godfather and then the story before, it's like, you know, sometimes people will experience your work 
in a non-linear fashion. You know, I'm one of those people. So I wasn't around for In the Heights in New York or anything. So now I experienced Hamilton first. Then I was like, wow, this is amazing. Then like, you know, he did something before this and you go and you, you go backwards and then you come forwards with it. What, what I've always found fascinating is how you try and break the idea of what the thing is and who's supposed to be in the thing. You know, you did that with Hamilton. I mean, people were freaking out at some point. They were like, Aaron Burr, black man, how can this be? And, and you know, and, and the sisters, but they're all of different races. But the story never broke. I'd love to know where you thought to yourself, you know what, we can tell stories and we can include people and we can change the way we present things in the world and it will be successful. Or did you doubt that it could be successful? I think I doubted it at every phase, but your belief in the idea has to be stronger than what the world is proposing, right? Like your job as an artist is to write what's missing. Like I did not see a future for myself in musical theater. Um, The other thing I'll add to like that initial impulse back when I was in college was like, it was the first Latin pop boom was happening. It was like Ricky Martin, like in leather pants singing Cup of Life, Mark Anthony, who we all loved, but was singing in English for the first time. It was Shakir, like Enrique Iglesias. And I remember being like, oh, all those guys are really hot. I'm, that's not going to be me either. <laughs> like, again, there is another lane that is not open to me. <laughs> um, so, again, it's about, like, writing what's missing. Um, you know, with, with Hamilton, I, I, I honestly was surprised that people were surprised about the casting because it was a hip hop and R&B musical. Like you can tell very clearly, like that's yeah. my inspiration yeah. for what I'm pulling for. So if it was an all white cast, you'd think I messed up. Like someone, someone messed up along the way. Right. Um, and so, you know, w- within the Heights, like I, again, like it is, it was just like, how many of us can I get on the board? Like that's, that's the goal is like, we're all going to be in this thing. And can we tell stories that are not about um like latinos from the 50s with knives in their hands right, <laughs> which right, i right. just which was is incredibly overrepresented in musical theater weirdly <laughs> <laughs> like 50s gangsters oh man that's hilarious because in south africa that was me for like most of my tv anything's anything that everyone would ask me to do in south africa there's like the stereotype of people who look like me they call them the colored gangster that's what they would always say they're like all right trevor you're gonna be the gangster and the next thing they'd be like trevor this is a new role you're gonna play a reformed gangster and then they'd be like for this one you you you're looking at someone who might be a gangster it you're became a like a thing used to be a gangster <laughs> yeah it was always gang related in some way shape or form um even even though you are somebody who's always challenged these things, even though you've always stri- you, you've always strived to write people in and create these stories, you haven't been immune from criticism. And and what was really interesting and, and beautiful to me was your response to some of the criticism that you got for In the Heights in terms of colorism. You know, some people said, hey, Lynn, we love your work. We love what you're doing. But man, it feels like there's so many Afro-Latinas who, who, are, not, who are not represented here. You know, we've got all these Afro-Latinos who could be in the movie and who aren't in the movie. And you responded. And it was interesting. You didn't say like, oh, I can do whatever I want. I, you know, this is my story and my world. You're like, hey, we're listening. And it was interesting that you, you basically said, I'm trying to make this world and I can do better. And I felt defensive on your behalf, funny enough. I was like, Lynn does so much. We had black people singing on Broadway. I'm, why are you doing this to Lynn? You're tearing down one of our own. But you, I, I honestly would love to know how you approach that criticism and, and what you think you could do better because you responded to it so meaningfully. Yeah, well, again, like I don't, I can't legislate how people feel like, again, 
all I want is for this neighborhood to feel seen. And if there's a segment of it that doesn't feel seen and they're saying that, like, you have to acknowledge that and let it in. And, you know, all, all I can do is, is, is learn from it and promise to do better. And again, there's so much Afro-Latinidad in the movie. The beef really was specifically dark-skinned Afro-Latinos in leading roles, in those leading principal roles. And like, why can't in this movie, you know, and I, and I totally understand that. And I, and I receive it and, and I just have to do better on, on the next one. But again, like, that is... Um, we took so much love and care and filmed on location. And, yeah. and so like, it's it, like, I'm, I'm happy to like take the learning from it and, and bring that to the next one. And, and also hold space to be proud of this thing we made that has been half my life. So like, I have to be able to hold both those things because they're both true. Like you are hearing from this community that feels underrepresented, that is hurting. It's a paradox, yeah. And, and like we made this thing and I'm proud of this thing and we don't get to make things like this much. So like I, I have to just be able to hold it all. As, as, as a creative, I, I wonder if that is something that becomes just a space that's occupied in, your, uh, occupied in your mind or does it become a burden or how do you prevent it from becoming a burden? You know, like how, how do you live in a space where you go, no, I'm, I'm always trying to tell the best story. I'm always trying to have everybody involved, but I'm not trying to be like, you know, specific about like, you need to be involved because I'm trying to paint a certain type of color. How, how do you do that as Lynn? Or do you think it's just naturally a learning for you as a person? I think it's naturally learning for me as a person. I think that one of the things I've learned, and I learned this in Hamilton, I learned this with Heights, and you learn it, listen, and you learn it because of the success of the thing. Like, right. that's also the thing. Right. Like, I'm incredibly lucky and privileged to even get to make things for a living. Right. I was a substitute teacher for half this book. <laughs> like, that was most of the time. Um, but I also think that, like, there is a reality of, like, when you make something, you're creating a frame. And the right. folks who are not in that frame are going to tell you, hey, we're not in the frame. And so you go, you have to acknowledge that and go, and the next time I make a frame, like keep that in mind. And that's sort of all you can do like as you move from thing to thing. You know, one of the most beautiful explanations I got was um, from one of, one of um, our writers. And she said to me, I was like, we were talking about this whole thing. And, and she said to me, she said, you know, what's really interesting here, Trevor, is I don't think anybody is angered at Lynn because they think he did something. I think it's because they know he's the one person who will listen. Because for so many Afro-Latinos, they've lived in this world where, whether it's Telemundo or Univision or, or you know, like any of the telenovelas, there's oh, a the telenovelas type. are Exactly, cold. it's like, this is what Latino looks like and it cannot be anything else. And they were like, but Lynn is the one person who will hear and Lynn is the one person who will listen. And that was, that was a beautiful oh, well, thing that to means me to understand. The world. That, mean, that means the world to me, honestly, because I, I will, like I am listening and I do want to do better with each project and, and I want to just keep having it bats and, and having the chance to, to prove that. Hey man, I'll tell you now, I will support you all the way. We keep putting you at bat. You keep hitting that thing out of the park. We make more, we enjoy more, we create more, and we celebrate you every single time. Thank you for being here, my friend. Thank you. It's good luck pleasure. for the rest of the movie. Good luck for the book. And uh, yeah, man, uh, I'll, I hope I'll see you at my Hamilton part two. I'm just gonna find who the person is that like no one really knows, underrepresented, but like that historical well, figure. I'm listen, just gonna use all your notes. Berg went to Mexico and tried to become emperor there. There is a story there. I don't know I'm, that I'm I... I'm gonna find... I'm gonna find... Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll find... Desamunda 2-2. I've got it. I've got it. Desamunda 2-2. I've got it. I've got it. I've got it. I've got, I'm gonna go right Follow the, the thread. Right now. Follow the thread. <laughs> right. What's missing? Lynn, look after yourself, my friend. All right. Thank you, Trevor. Take care. Don't forget, Lynn's book, In the Heights, Finding Home, is available right now, and the film is in theaters and on HBO Max. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back after this.
Well, that's our show for tonight. But before we go, June, as you know, is Pride Month. So please consider supporting an organization called The Trevor Project. It's the world's largest suicide prevention and crisis intervention organization for LGBTQ plus young people. Your support will help them offer LGBTQ plus youth free, confidential, and 24-7 lifeline chat and text crisis services. So if you are able to help in any way, then please go to the link below. Until tomorrow, stay safe out there, get your vaccine, and remember, nobody should be bullied on Twitter, except for bullies. Although if you bully a bully, then you're a bully, which means they can bully you, so there. Wait, I gotta put more thoughts into this. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central, and stream full episodes anytime on Paramount+. Plus. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.